0: Hello, Dan here. Just to say, at the end of this episode, we'll play you a clip from this week's episode of This Is History Plus. So stick around after the theme music. Enjoy the episode. The Palace of Westminster is bright and airy on one of the last days of spring in 1227. The two teenagers, standing together in one of its great chambers, surrounded by their friends and supporters, cough and shuffle their feet nervously. There's a buzz of excitement around the chamber. Onlookers nudge each other and whisper. Latecomers mutter hushed apologies as they sneak into the crowd, trying not to disrupt the ceremony that's about to take place. Somewhere far away in the palace, pots and pans clang in the kitchens. The laughter of cooks preparing a banquet drifts along the corridors. A servant pulls a heavy door closed with a creak. And the sound fades away. Despite the pomp and formality surrounding them, the teenagers can't resist grinning at each other. After all, they're brothers. Then the elder of the two, 19-year-old Henry III, King of England, gets the ceremony underway. He holds in his hands two glittering, expensive items. One of them is a sword, the other is a belt. They're rare and precious things in their own right. But they're even rarer and more precious because of what they symbolise. This sword and belt represent a title and a lot of wealth. Henry is giving them to his younger brother Richard to officially invest him with a new rank. He's making him, or to use the correct term, belting him, Earl of Cornwall. That's a pretty big deal. Cornwall might not be close to Westminster, the political hub of the country, but it's rich in natural resources there are plenty of fish to be caught off the long coastline. Even more handily, there are deposits of tin and, as it will turn out, silver under the ground. Mining has been going on there for generations. Whoever is the Earl has the right to skim off the profits of those mines. It's a license to print money. And now at Westminster, Henry III is officially giving the earldom to his kid brother Richard. I say officially because 18-year-old Richard has known this day is coming for a while. Henry promised him Cornwall years ago, and Richard's had limited access to its funds ever since. But only this year, 1227, has Henry been allowed to hand out swords and belts as he likes. Although he's been king since he was nine years old, His advisors have kept him on a tight leash. They've wanted to be sure he won't grant away royal lands and titles without thinking it through properly. Or if you're being cynical, they've wanted to be sure he only grants the best stuff to them and their mates. Now Henry's 19, that state of affairs has been impossible to keep up. So since January, Henry has finally been free to act as king completely in his own right. And he's been cheerfully giving away royal goodies ever since. Earldom's here, knighthood's there, estates for you, manors for your long-lost sister. It's been a bonanza, and Richard is just one of many lucky winners. Which isn't to say he doesn't deserve it. Only last month, Richard came home from two years away in France. He's been there defending Plantagenet lands against the French king Louis VIII, and as we heard last episode, he did a pretty good job. It wasn't perfect. He and the army he took over there were supposed to win back the county of Poitou, and they failed. But by the standards of recent years, this has been a winning time for the Plantagenets. Even better... While Richard's been over in France, Louis the Lion surprised everyone by dying. Richard can't take any credit for this. Louis died of our old friend dysentery, which he picked up while harassing a bunch of heretics in southern France known as the Cathars. All the same, a dead French king is usually better than a living one. So everyone is in a good mood. Henry has his freedom, Richard has his earldom, the new French king, Louis the IX, is a 13-year-old lad, and his mum, Blanche of Castile, is running the show for the foreseeable future. So everything is looking kind of rosy. It's now more than ten years since Henry and Richard's miserable old dad, John, died, and the civil war he brought down on England came to an end. True, Henry's ministers have committed him to governing according to Magna Carta, which is going to make raising easy cash by the old plantagenet tricks of blackmail and extortion a bit tougher than in the past. And yes, there's plenty to be done to win back their lost lands in France. Louis IX's mum Blanche may be a woman, but she's no pushover. But surely between them, the newly liberated 19-year-old King Henry and the newly belted 18-year-old Richard Earl of Cornwall can look to a bright new Plantagenet future in which they will be the leading lights, brothers in arms, a golden generation. All they have to do is not stumble into the old Plantagenet trap of falling out with each other and dragging the whole country into their insane psychodrama. Honestly... How hard can it be? I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. Season four of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode two, Brothers in Arms. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash dynasty. Indeed.com slash dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Have you ever had a boss, a colleague, or maybe a family member who just can't seem to make up their mind? I'm not talking about dithering, like, shall I have the steak and chips for dinner, or maybe the cocker van? No, I'll have the soup. I mean the sort of person who changes their opinion depending on the last person they spoke to, who'll sit and merrily repeat the last hot take they've read online without seeming to realise they're saying exactly the opposite of the last but one hot take they read online or if they're in the office, you'll come out of a meeting with them thinking they've made a decision based on your carefully reasoned advice, and then two hours later, you find out they've reversed it based on the carefully reasoned advice of Greg from the second floor. It can be pretty annoying. But if your boss is the King of England, and lord of what remains of the Plantagenet Empire, it can be worse than annoying. That sort of tendency in a king can start fights or even wars. But that, in a nutshell, is Henry III's personality type, and from 1227 onwards it will cause big issues for all of those around him, not least his little brother Richard, the new Earl of Cornwall. In the eight years that Henry has been growing up as a king with training wheels on, he's been under the influence of a succession of loudest voices in the room, who've steered him in the direction they think he needs to go. There was our old pal William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, who saved Henry's bacon at the end of John's reign and died, warning him not to be a tyrant like his dad. There were a couple of papal representatives, or legates, called Guala and Pandulf, who've drilled into Henry just how much he owes their boss, the Pope, for approving him as a king. But for the last 5 years one man has been virtually attached to Henry at the hip. It's one of John's old ministers called Hubert de Burr and Henry thinks the world of him. Hubert is in his mid 50s. He's pious, brave and clever. What's more, he's done it all. If you've been to Tenerife, Hubert's been to 11 a reef. Hubert was in the thick of things during John's hopeless wars with Philip Augustus. He advised John to grant Magna Carta, stayed loyal afterwards and was in command of the defence of Dover Castle and the sea battle at Sandwich that effectively ended the war. He was also the one guarding Arthur of Brittany when John did away with him in 1203. That's a mixed record to say the least. But there's no denying that Hubert's been around the block, and he has a sort of hypnotic power over Henry, which just so happens to mean that he gets constantly showered with riches and titles. Even before Richard gets the Earldom of Cornwall, Hubert's got the Earldom of Kent. He has a special license to ignore sheriffs on his own lands, which amounts, more or less, to immunity from the law. He arranges bumper handouts to all his friends at court. He even manages to get royal permission to marry the King of Scotland's sister. This blatant favouritism gets quite a lot of people's backs up. But as long as Hubert has Henry's ear, there's not much they can do about it. Or there isn't, until Richard comes back from France. In the months that follow the belting ceremony, Richard starts to get a funny feeling that his brother Henry isn't doing his job entirely independently. As so often with Plantagenet crises, it all starts over something minor. Having taken full control of the earldom of Cornwall, Richard starts figuring out where all the best manors and estates lie. He discovers that half a dozen or so are in the hands of an old knight called Valoran the German, who was given them by the king just before he handed Cornwall over to Richard. Now, who Valoran the German is doesn't really matter. What does matter is that this is classic Henry. He wants everyone to like him, and he's easily persuaded by the person who's in front of him at any given moment. That means he's effectively given the same present to two different people. And Hubert de Burr, who's running his government for him, has signed off on it. So trouble isn't long coming. In July 1227, Richard, rather overbearingly and very plantagenately, storms into Valoran's manors and snatches them for himself. Valoran goes and complains to Henry, and Henry tells Richard to give them back. Richard comes to court and starts laying in to his brother, Henry shouts that he'd better give the manners back or he's going to kick Richard out of England. Richard, more or less, tells him to poke it where the sun don't shine, then he hops on his horse and rides off in an epic sulk. Now that, as the saying goes, escalated quickly. It's been no more than two months since Henry and Richard were best pals. Now Richard's riding off around England, riling up other earls and knights. It not hard. There's a lot of resentment out there against Henry's cosy relationship with Hubert de Burr. There are also plenty of complaints about royal officials breaking the terms of Magna Carta, which is becoming the go-to stick to beat the king with if he so much as looks at you the wrong way. But Richard finds his closest ally in none other than William Marshall. No, not that Marshall, who firstly is as loyal as they come, but, more importantly, has been dead for several years. It's his eldest son, William Marshall the Younger. This junior Marshall has so far been kept sweet by Hubert. What's more, he's married to Henry and Richard's sister, Eleanor. He ought to be an arch-loyalist, like his dad. But clearly he's fed up with just how much influence Hubert has over the king. Or perhaps he sees this as a good opportunity to wrangle some riches of his own out of the pliable Henry. Either way, at the end of July, Richard, Marshall Jr and a whole host of other powerful barons gather a small army together at Stamford, one of the most famous meeting grounds of the rebel barons who made war on King John in 1215 and 1216. With swords in their hands, they demand justice for Richard in Cornwall. They curse the name of Hubert de Burr. They start crying, reform and similar highly triggering Plantagenet red flag phrases. In response, Hubert raises an army and demands the fed-up barons meet him at Northampton to see who's boss. It's incredible just how fast everything has gone wrong. Henry was so different from his dad and the other Plantagenet hotheads and tried to keep everyone happy. And yet, look where we are. Now, in almost the blink of an eye, England has slipped from brotherly love towards another Plantagenet civil war. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. For the first ten days of August 1227, Plantagenet, England holds its breath. In Northampton, armed knights stamp around in their armour. Swords are sharpened, crossbow bolts are struck, blacksmiths hammer new shoes onto enormous war horses. It's like the bad old days have all come rushing back. Then something unusual happens. Something really unusual. The brothers, Henry and Richard, look like they're about to start cosplaying the 1180s. Go back and re-listen to season one if you want to remind yourself of how that went down. But just as they're on the brink of all-out war, they back down. Henry issues Richard and William Marshall the Younger with safe conducts to meet him in Northampton. Every other earl in the neighbourhood is invited too. When they get there, Henry makes them an offer. If they want to appoint representatives to spell out how Magna Carta is being ignored, they're welcome to do it. He'll look into complaints about royal forests too. Henry hands out some lands and some fancy financial promises. He even gives his sister Eleanor, William Marshall's wife, a fat deer for her pantry. This is almost literally pork barrel politics. Richard gets some soothing words, and Henry hands him some juicy lands that used to belong to their mum, Isabella, who's now off living across the channel with her new husband and their family. Richard shrugs and accepts, and just like that, all the sting is taken out of the rebellion. You've got to say, it's hard to see a Richard the Lionheart or King John smoothing over a potential rebellion that tamely. Richard the Lionheart would have hunted down every single rebel with extreme prejudice. John would have smiled and listened to their complaints, then stabbed them in the back and murdered their wives and children for good measure. But Henry, under the influence of Hubert de Burr, has agreed with all the rebels' complaints, and then effectively paid them to chill out. As one chronicler puts it, the mouths of the rebels have been stuffed up with gifts. In a way, it's impressively smooth, but at the same time, it's not exactly sustainable. And it points to a big problem with Henry's kingship that's going to get worse as the reign goes on. He's a soft touch, he doesn't like confrontation, and he's generous to a fault which might sound like traits you want in a king, especially after the Plantagenet joyride the country's been on so far. But as we're going to see, they're really not. He's not exactly dislikeable, but it's not easy to admire him. As for Richard of Cornwall, well, he's no saint either. There's no doubt he's a more typical Plantagenet than his older brother. He's hot-headed, like his namesake, quick on the draw and out for himself. Those qualities are going to take him a long way in life, but there'll be plenty of casualties lying by the roadside. For now, though, it's crisis averted, and everyone muddles along for the next few years. Hubert de Burr stays glued to Henry's side, getting richer and more powerful by the day. In 1228, Henry makes him justiciar that's basically Prime Minister, for life. In the same year, Hubert's nephew miraculously becomes Justitia of Ireland. And to keep Richard sweet, he keeps getting showered with nice plum territories as well, and this time they haven't been given to anyone else first. In fact, everyone's so chummy that in 1229 and 1230, Henry, Hubert and Richard all team up and go off to have another stab at fighting the French in Poitou. This doesn't go well. In fact, the whole thing is a total fiasco. They come back with nothing to show for it but bruised egos. One chronicler writes that Henry lost many of his men, spent a great deal of money, and recovered little or nothing of his lands. Yet, strangely, or not, no one other than snarky chroniclers seems to have the heart to blame Henry, who's earning his reputation for being basically a bit of a simpleton. The person everyone should be blaming is Hubert. He's the experienced military man who should have kept the train on the rails. But he proves time and time again to be Teflon. Nothing will stick to him, mainly because every time he's in the spotlight, he wriggles, greases palms and dazzles his way out of trouble. So while their adventure together ends in defeat, no one catches too much flack. In fact, it's not a battle that sends everything spiralling – it's a wedding. In 1231, shortly after returning from France, Richard marries into the Marshall family, getting hitched to William Marshall Jr's sister Isabella. This is a big threat to Hubert because the Marshalls are an immensely powerful family now, and by signing Richard up, They present a clear and present danger to his dominance, no matter how starry-eyed Henry remains about him. When Richard and Isabella have a son in 1232, and name him John, of all things, relations between the brothers are positively frosty. With Henry's OK, Hubert de Burr moves in and confiscates some of Richard's key territories in the Welsh borders to try and dilute his power. Richard shapes like he's going to repeat his nonsense of 1227 and raise an army with his martial family to rebel against the king and Hubert. But once again, what looks like it's going to be an epic crisis sputters out. Henry pacifies Richard, who shows his heart isn't so much in doing the right thing as it is in squeezing the most out of any situation for himself. Richard allows himself to be bought off. William Marshall Jr. dies suddenly, perhaps even a little suspiciously, more on that in this week's subscriber episode, and, in any case, the crisis is averted. And so a pattern seems to have been set. Richard will periodically make trouble for his brother and then back down, in exchange for a fat fee. It's all a bit grubby, but it's also a world away from the great upheavals of their dad's reign. Or so things seem for a while. But then, just as Plantagenet politics seem to have settled into a recognisable cycle, a whole new set of family members arrive on the scene to throw things out of whack. Remember their dear old mum remarried in France? That resulted in a whole batch of step-siblings and half-brothers for the Plantagenets. And they're coming to England. They're trouble. But there's one man who's more than trouble. He shows up at court in the 1230s. And virtually from the moment he steps through the door, Plantagenet England is on a path to the worst crisis it has ever known. I want to talk to you about dead French kings. You've gone all serious. Yeah, this is a serious topic because okay. you mentioned in episode one, Philip died. I have killed off some French kings like with Pretty a sentence Pretty quick succession, yeah. yeah. Philip died, he was a major antagonist throughout the series, and now Louis the Lion's gone too. What happened? What's going on in France? Well, I'm sorry about this quickfire killing of French kings. Let's take him in order. Well, look, Philip Augustus has been around forever. I mean, mm. Philip Augustus was around in season one. Yeah. You remember him, 15 years old, sitting under a tree going, one day I think I'll make France really great. He did it. He did it. He did it. He did it. I mean, Philip Augustus will go, he dies in uh, on the 14th of July, 1223. And he goes down in history as one of the great... I mean, that's why he gets the name Augustus for a reason. I mean, he is one of the great medieval French kings. Uh, His goal, stated when he's sitting under that tree as a teenager, is to take France back from a sort of uh, a piddly little sort of notional kingdom in which really the the French king's authority doesn't extend far outside Paris to France. Mm. And all these places, people like the Plantagenets rule... I'm going to be the boss of. And Philip goes an enormous way towards doing that, even just in his relationship with the Plantagenets. By the time he dies in 1223, he's taken back Normandy. He's taken back Anjou, main terrain. He, you know, he's extended French uh, dominance uh, to an extent in the northwest. He's, you know, the, the the chipping away in the south. He has allowed his son, Louis the Lion, to try and conquer England. He's then given him his blessing uh, in the 1220s to go in a different direction down to the south of France. Philip has allowed his son Louis to go down and fight a crusade in southern France, notionally against some heretics called the Cathars, who hold a sort of you know they're beatnik vegetarians basically. They're not very scary, but they are they are um, heretical. And so, with papal backing and uh, and the backing of the crown, Louis the Lion has gone down and has, has fought a, a vicious, vicious crusade to wipe out these Cathars. But also, by the by, to bring to heel. Lords like the the Counts of Toulouse, who are sort of slightly sponsoring these Cathars, or at least not punishing them harshly enough, and whose authority this looks like a good opportunity to stamp out. So Philip has pursued this goal of of extending royal power in a serious, meaningful way across France. He's also done lots of other things that will uh, sort of mark him as a great king. He's totally redeveloped Paris and paved the streets, rebuilt the walls, um, given a charter to the university, built Les the market. Uh, carried on with the redevelopment of, of Notre Dame I think however you're going to like one of his greatest achievements uh, towards the end of his life mm-hmm. uh, and this is we know about this from a poem written in 1224 by Henri Dondely who writes it just after Philip dies who says that Philip holds near the end of his life a winemaking uh championship oh gosh it's tell called, me more it's called the battle of the Wines. And Philip decides to, to find out what the best wine in the whole of Christendom is. This is my kind of battle. Right. And he has, uh, there, I think there are 70 of the greatest wines from across Europe are called in. I think it's Paris, but it, it may not be Paris, but it's, it's it, into the French kingdom. And there's a priest, I think an English priest, weirdly, who Philip rates as having the sort of best palate of, uh, surprise, surprise, <laughs> a churchman is the, knows the most about wine. And the priest tastes all the wines... And if he likes them, he declares them to be celebrated. And if he doesn't like them, he calls them excommunicated. <laughs> he sends the wine to hell. Yeah, and the one that wins is going to be called the Apostle. Oh. And we know which one wins. It's a wine you can still get today. No. It's a dessert wine from Cyprus. Like, you're actually writing this down, aren't you? I, th- I don't know if they sell it in Waitrose. But, like, <laughs> is it going to bankrupt me? It's called Commandaria, And it's a Cypriot dessert wine, a sweet wine. And at the Battle of the Wines, this is the one that wins. Oh so, look, gosh. my point here is that, uh, that Philip Augustus is a great king in many ways, as well as Crusader King and all of this stuff we already know about. 1222, he's in poor health. But, hey, look, he's... Is it shortly after he drinks 70 casks of wine? <laughs> the commander is really not good today. Um- That was a clip from This Is History Plus. There's more like that every week, where I chat with my producer about all things Plantagenet and answer your questions on the show. To listen to more like that, you can start a free trial by going to thisishistorypod.com or if you're on Apple Podcasts, click Try Free at the top of the page. And a reminder, you'll also get access to next week's episode early. It's already waiting.